Welcome back to the Running Wine Mom podcast. I'm your host, Samantha Selinski, aka the Running Wine Mom. As you may know, June is World Infertility Awareness Month, and it is with great significance that we have the opportunity to speak with someone whose journey through infertility sheds light on the challenges faced by countless individuals and couples. She's a talented high-end wedding photographer who has embarked on a courageous journey that intertwines with the challenges of male infertility. Noelle's journey began right at the onset of the COVID pandemic, and she has since navigated through the complexities of failed IUI and, and IVF procedures. As an IVF patient herself, Noelle brings a unique perspective to our conversation, shedding light on the emotional roller coaster, the physical demands, and the financial considerations that come with fertility treatment. Beyond her personal experience, Noelle's resilience and determination have been evident throughout her journey. As we dive into her story, we'll explore the initial emotions and thoughts that arose when she and her partner first discovered their issues. We'll also discuss the coping mechanisms they employed, the importance of finding support systems, and the impact the journey has had on their relationship. Noelle's story serves as inspiration for others facing similar challenges on their path to parenthood. Through her journey, she has become an advocate for raising awareness and understanding about infertility, and she will be sharing valuable insights, advice, and resources for our listeners. So sit back, pour yourself a glass of wine, and join us as we dive into Noelle's profound and empowering journey through male factor infertility and resilience that fuels her pursuit of parenthood. Welcome, Noelle. Thank you for joining me today. (laughs) Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I am so thankful for you sharing, as I was saying before, your journey. Uh, So many people during this, as you probably, you know, we'll talk about feelings of aloneness and um, just not really knowing what direction to take and knowing the, uh, your story will be so helpful for that. Before we get into that, to start each episode, we have our wine, wine, and win of the week segment. And this is where we start. We share our favorite bottle of wine or drink, then about something that has been bothering us and celebrate our recent victories. So let's grab a glass, take a deep breath, and let's get started. So what is your wine, W-I-N-E of the week? So, um, I have, I'm drinking a red. I love this brand. It's Campo Viejo. Mm -hmm. Um, it's on the cheaper end, but they have like a bunch of different ones. So like the reserve is a little more expensive, but this is one of my favorites, the Tempranillo. So that's what I'm drinking. I got my cute little Philadelphia wine glass here. (laughs) I am sadly drinking water tonight because, uh, my, I like lost my voice over the weekend. And uh, so I'm trying to get it back basically. So that's why I sound a little, <laughs> I hear um, you. And what is your W H I N E of the week? That's funny. I was thinking about it earlier. Um, we're only at Monday, so I feel like I shouldn't have too God. many complaints. <laughs> um, you know, we're just starting the week off. So I feel like mine is a little cliche and boring, but like it just environmentally and like with the weather, it's been crazy. Just today it was like downpouring a couple of days ago. We had the Philadelphia collapse, I-95 collapse. Anyone who's listening to this, like in the future is going to be like, oh, I remember that. <laughs> oh, and like the Canadian fires, it's just been crazy. So I've had incessant headaches, I feel like because of all of that. So that's like my real wine, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think that's where my throat issue stemmed from was last week with the, right. it was like fine. And then all of a sudden it was just so, um, and the I-95 thing is also it's crazy. Yeah, so it's, it's a little, little crazy over here. And what is your win of the week? Um, my win I'm going to say is, um, I started my Monday off, right. I got on the Peloton. I'm proud of myself. Um, you know, lately I've just been like, 
slacking. So that was like my, that's my win of the week to start the week right. off right with a workout. And I feel, I feel good. Never miss Monday. I did miss my Monday today. <laughs> <laughs> I like right. that though. Never yeah. miss Monday. It's a good, it's a good one. Um, and I like to ask my guests what um, their struggles and what they are most proud of. So what are two to three struggles you've overcome leading to where you are now? Yeah. So I was thinking about this and I think my biggest struggle that I haven't like quite overcome it, but I'm still, you know, still working on it is, um, has been anxiety really. Like that's been, I've dealt with anxiety my whole life and, you know, I didn't even realize it until much later in life, but I, I think like the stress and anxiety, if you don't manage it properly, it can really just like bleed into every aspect of your life. So, um, I think that's one of the things that I've gotten a better handle on as I've gotten older to really try to help me like overcome just anything really yeah. like anything you face and any challenges you face, like the stress and anxiety that goes with it. Like you have to manage that. Um, and then kind of also along those lines is like just kind of breaking down these mental barriers of just figuring out what, what do I want to do in life? Like things that are holding you back and things like that. So like, that's a huge one that I feel like I have gotten better at, you know, overcoming and just like not, you know, not having this like imposter syndrome or, you know, things like that. So I think those are like the two that kind of come to mind. Yeah. And imposter syndrome is so real. It's like something that I forget when I heard about it, but I was like, wow, I totally have that because you look at other people and you're like, oh yeah, they, they're good at that. And really like everyone's just figuring it out. And once you realize that, then you're like, yeah, I can do anything I want. Yeah. A hundred percent. So let's quickly talk about your fitness. You said that you do the pellet to the Peloton today. What is that your main way of staying active or how's your favorite way to stay active? So, um, my fitness journey has evolved and changed across, you know, my lifespan. Um, I did a lot of sports when I was younger. I was big into soccer. Gymnastics was a huge one. I did competitive gymnastics until, you know, up until high school. Um, but I pretty much since I graduated high school, I've always tried to figure out a way to stay active and just stay, um, in the gym. And so in college, I go to the, the college gym, but then I would also take some classes. I was telling somebody today, I took belly dancing in, in like one of their fitness classes. Yeah. And it was like the most fun I've ever had in my life. And even just over the years, I can remember like all the, the many different gyms I joined when I was in New York, I was at New York sports club and just always trying to like keep my feet in the gym. Um, I wasn't always consistent and I definitely go through like ups and downs with it where it's like, I, three months off or, you know, it's just up and down, but I just always find that I come back to it somehow. So currently, um, my husband built like this amazing gym in our basement that is like, you know, professional levels and we got a Peloton and we have a treadmill. So right now I am doing a lot of like working out at home type of stuff, mostly the Peloton, but I'm trying to get back into like a little more, you know, weight training and things like that. During COVID, we bought a treadmill because I'm not a runner I, I, and I don't like running outside, but I needed something and I actually really loved it. We we got like the Norda track that does like the classes where it, it, the, the treadmill goes up and down by itself. It, it, they, the speed increases based on the instructor. So that's like basically where I'm at with it now. And I mean, I don't know if you know, but on the, like with the Peloton, with the app, they have treadmill workouts. They have, um, 
like the hiking. I always talk about the hiking classes. Mark just took his first hiking class the other day. I haven't tried them yet. I need to. Really good. Yeah. Just like, I mean, the music is just so, I love the music of it. And that's like really something that um, you need a mindless one. Um, So what are your struggles that you have to stay fit or healthy? Um, I think honestly, just consistency. I'm, I'm not a very consistent person for for my career. I'm a creative person, so I don't really have like a set structure to my day. So a lot of times it's like, you know, whenever I just feel like working out, I'm kind of like, oh, this is a good time to like stop maybe and just like go ride the Peloton. So it's really easy to like talk yourself out of it, you know? Um, so I just think my biggest struggle is consistency and, just trying to like motivate myself to do it. I should, my husband works out every day. So mm-hmm. I feel like that should keep me motivated, but it's like, I don't know. It's just, he works out with, yeah. Like he works out with his friends. It's not me and him working out together, but uh, I'm trying to like, set myself more of a schedule to stay yeah. consistent with it. It is hard. And like, if you don't schedule it in, um, to not get it in that's like it's easier with classes like I I should start taking some classes again because I'd like schedule a class like a week out Mm -hmm. and I was like booked paid for and then like day comes and you're like I really don't want to go but I already paid and it's already booked so then you go and then you feel great and it's like you can't back out so I should probably like look into doing (laughs) some. I really want to get into like kickboxing so maybe we'll see if I can start that up Um, what do you wish that you learned earlier in life about fitness and nutritional health? I think for me, the biggest thing is I wish I learned earlier in life that, um, eating healthy doesn't always mean eating less. In college, it was like, I would starve myself because I thought that was what you're supposed to do. And less calories is, is, is what you're supposed to do. But I had joined like a fitness program, probably like 10 years ago. And I did it for like a couple of years. And I learned so much about just nutrition and eating every couple of hours throughout the day, but making it healthy meals, like a lot of protein and, and things that are going to keep you fuller longer. So I wish I learned that earlier. And then the second thing is, um, I wish I had learned how nutrition and fitness really play an important role in your fertility. It's something we're not taught at all, but a lot of people have issues that they don't even realize that nutrition really could help. And so that's something, you know, even something as simple as, you know, this is like a little TMI, but when I was in college, I would get like yeast infections all the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I thought it was just like a thing because my mom would get them. But then I realized um, kind of a little later um, in life that, a lot of it had to do with diet. And if you eat a lot of sugar and bread and things like that, your body, some people's bodies just turn that into yeast more. Yeah. I learned that like later in life too. I think it was, I was teaching like a health class and I was talking about it and researching, you know, that being something that happens. And I didn't know that either, like ever until probably my late twenties or thirties. Yeah, you're right. Can you talk about the relationship between mental health and physical health? Yeah. So I definitely think for me, it's staying active is really important to staying grounded. And just like, if I'm physically starting to feel off or gross then like mentally you get into this like mental fog too. So I think there is an an important connection there. And I'm lucky enough that I grew up with a mom who always worked out and she was always active. I don't I don't know if anyone remembers Jazzercise from the 80s, but yes. like <laughs> I was like doing Jazzercise with her in like our basement. And like, so 
I don't think I made the connection then, but I, I'm realizing now that she was doing that to obviously stay active and healthy, but also I'm sure it helped her mental health. You know what I mean? So uh, I think that was always just kind of ingrained in me that like, you have to stay active and move your body. And it was never talked about, which I think I actually appreciate because it was more like, this is what you do to stay healthy and not like, then become like a thing or like a complex. It's just a part of your routine, just going to work or something. That's, yeah. I love that. That's, in, yeah. that's, in, that's interesting. Cause you know, most, I feel like most of our age, our moms always talked about eating nothing and skip your breakfast and, you know, <laughs> low calories, high working out, but that's great to know, you know, not talking about it and making a big deal kind of makes it a big deal for, you know, the people watching. Yeah. All right. So let's transition into the main part of the podcast, which will focus on your infertility journey. Uh, It's important to note that the following segment is not intended to provide medical advice. Instead, we invite you to listen to Noelle's unique story, offering a glimpse into her personal experience and timeline she has navigated. So why don't you start us off with your story, maybe a timeline of what you guys have been going through. And this way we'll get to know you a little bit and get into some more in-depth questions after. Uh, my timeline with fertility treatments and everything, it's pretty extensive. It spans over three years. So um, I'm going to try to give like the Cliff Notes version here. Um, but I do think it is important to kind of highlight some of this because uh, people may not realize how long some of these things take or the the timelines of it all and, and and things like that. So I think it is helpful to just kind of like explain it to people. So I had gone off birth control in 2017, but we weren't like actively trying for a couple of years. Um, and since I had gone off birth control, I had been on it for so, so long, 15 years or more. I, I don't remember at that point. Um, so it took a while for my cycles to really come back. And they were always super late before I went on birth control, but it, I noticed it was just very up and down. So I started tracking probably like in 2018 and I just noticed that my cycle lengths would vary pretty drastically, like, you know, 20, 30 days to like 45 days. And I didn't necessarily know that that was wrong. (laughs) I figured, oh, it's like a month, you know, roughly a month and some change. So in about summer of 2019, I finally went to the doctors. She's like, Hey, let's just get checked out. And I ended up, instead of going to my uh, gynecologist, I went straight to the fertility clinic just because I was like, I have an aunt that went through fertility and I was like, let me just like go straight to the source. So I met with them in the summer and then went through a whole slew of testing, blood tests, um, HSG, which is uh, for anybody who doesn't know, it's a, um, a saline procedure that they do through your uterus to make sure that everything's open, nothing's blocked, and so forth. And then my husband, Steve, uh, had his first semen analysis um, that fall. So I, of course, kind of got all the slew of testing done first. And then it was like, all right, let's bring him in. Him in. And um, That always goes, right? <laughs> I know. I know. Um so his, his numbers in that first analysis were like lower on the lowish end, but they weren't like overly concerned at that point. Um, and when I say low, I'm saying like 15 million. So, which is also something that I didn't realize, like what consisted of low, the more I talked to friends whose husbands 
have like low numbers and I'm like 15 million. I mean, that sounds like a lot. It's not like, I know. <laughs> right. You're like, okay, cool. Yeah. But what people don't realize is, a, you know, a normal guy might have like a hundred million or right. 200 million. So like on the spectrum, it is low. And there are people who have much lower numbers than this. So it's, it's, there's a huge range. Um, so after that, it was kind of like, all right, let's just like keep tracking cycles and things like that. Um, and then by January 2020, we decided like, let's go back because you know nothing has happened still. And um, they did another semen analysis, which again was kind of low, but they didn't really see anything. They were like, if anything, you should try IUI next. Like, let's just like get that in the calendar. So we were going to do that in March of 2020. And then of course COVID hit. <laughs> um, and so that got canceled. And then we kind of like met, had a, a virtual appointment to touch base with them in April again. And it was like, oh, we have like a huge backlog and we're trying to people's cycles. Like they were in the middle of like an IVF cycle and oh, it just yeah. canceled. Like I, I can't even imagine how devastating that would have been. So we were on kind of like a bit of a waiting list um, to get in. So we had we had our first IUI scheduled for June. It's actually my husband's birthday that day that it was scheduled for. Um, and we went in the morning. So leading up to IUI, there's some things to note. You take some um, some medicine to help you ovulate, or you are basically trying to get like the egg and a couple eggs to grow. So you right. could get like multiple eggs growing. And then, so leading up to it, you take some meds. Um, I took Clomid and then you do a trigger shot. So you trigger, you know, 48 hours before you do the procedure. And so we did the trigger, we're all ready to go. And in the morning of my husband gives his sample and they call us and say, actually, I think they did they call us? I don't know if they called us before we went in or we are already there. I can't remember. Um, and they said, unfortunately, his numbers were too low. Uh. So we couldn't do it. So something to note about, you know, what they do to the sperm to get it ready is it goes through a washing process. So when it gets washed, those numbers decrease even more. Okay. So you have low numbers to start with and then it goes through the wash and then it comes out with even less they want it to be at a minimum number really for it to be successful right and that was a huge shock because we didn't know that could happen we didn't know that they could just like cancel it yeah. so it was obviously very upsetting and then we decided to go in for the the second attempt in july um so there's always this like waiting period that happens it's like you know once that doesn't work it's like okay Let's wait for your period and then we'll start again. And if you have a longer cycle, it's waiting like 40 days, you know, or, you know, however many to get right. to day one cycle. Um, so that's just like, you know, an annoying part of the process. So second attempt, just we, we went through with it, but it wasn't successful. And at that point, we just started to kind of like do some initial testing. They're like, you can continue to do IUIs, but like with his numbers being so low, we don't recommend it. So they kind of recommended IVF. But at that point we were like, let's just do some more testing and just kind of like, if there's anything else we can do to, to, you know, get more information, that would be important. So my husband went in to do um, an actual exam with the urologist. He had not had one at that point. Um, and then that's when they found out that he has something called a varicocele. So essentially it's an oversight, like the vein going to the testicle is enlarged. 
um, and it can cause a lot of issues. So it can mm -hmm. cause um, overheating, the blood flow, which is like too much blood pumping down there. Um, and it can actually cause low counts. So a lot of uh, men don't necessarily know they have it. Sometimes it's visible. Sometimes it's not. You can only, it, it can only be tested or found with an actual like physical exam. So we found out he had that and it's usually on one side. Um, a lot of times it's on the left side. I'm not sure why. Um, and then I also did a genetic panel with a company called Myriad. So like they do genetic testing to make sure you don't have anything that, you know, perhaps if, if you have it and your husband have it, then it could cause some, some really major issues. So I had that done. Um, so then by the fall, we had like our first IVF consult and they basically, the recommendation was because the surgery for the varicocele takes a while for it to heal and his body to really respond to it and, and start getting the numbers up. They said that our best bet would be to start an IVF cycle. And then hopefully by the time I got pregnant, well into the pregnancy, he would then have the surgery. And then the, the thought is, okay, it's fixed. It gives him time to heal and his body to respond to it. And then hopefully you can, you know, have more kids without IVF. Right. Um, so we decided to go ahead and move forward. And then we had our first retrieval December of 2020. And that one was the day after my 34th birthday. <laughs> so it was like all very like, it just felt surreal. Right. You know what I mean? And I think we'll probably talk a little bit about like how IVF works. Right. Yes. Later. But um, just to kind of give you a little bit of a breakdown. So we ended up with four embryos from that cycle. We did not do genetic testing on them. Um, I was still young enough where they were like not really recommending it and we didn't really know a lot about it. So we were like, okay, let's just like get the process moving because it definitely can delay things a little bit because you have to get them tested and then they freeze them and then it just takes a little while. So we ended up um, freezing three of them and we did a fresh transfer. So basically that means that after the retrieval, they put them in the incubator, they let them grow. And then by day five, I went back and they were, they transferred one of them, um, into my uterus. Okay. So that's called a fresh transfer. It's basically it's as soon as it's done growing, they stick it in. Um, and that one ended up turning into a positive pregnancy. So we ended up testing positive on Christmas day. Oh gosh. <laughs> I know it's like of all things to yeah. like, yourself, like it could have gone really bad, but we were, you know, we were thrilled. It was, right. it was exciting. So that did work. But then we found out shortly after that, um, the HCG levels had gone down and it turned into a, what they call a chemical pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times it happens so early in the cycle. So you're only like four or five weeks pregnant mm -hmm. at that point. Um, and so a lot of people don't even know they have chemical pregnancies. Yeah. Um, but because we tested so early, you know. we could see, you know, the line getting lighter and lighter and lighter. So I had to go in for blood tests and then they, they saw that it, it went down. Mm. So that didn't work. Um, and then, well, again, the, the process takes so long after that to get to another transfer yeah. because basically it's, it's like, you know, okay, let's wait till, you know, cycle day one. And then once you get there, then you go in for some more, um, 
testing, making sure your, your lining looks okay to start again. And then you go through the process of a, a frozen embryo transfer, which from start to finish takes about eight weeks um, wow. because you have to start on birth control because they want to really um, level out your, your cycle and have a little bit more control. And then you start taking meds that will help your lining grow. Okay. So it takes a lot longer than if your body was to do it by itself, but mm -hmm. they want, they want to kind of control process. So it takes about eight weeks. So we had our next transfer in uh, March of 2021. So between December and March, it was like yes. basically like a break, which okay. was so frustrating. Yeah. Um, that one also ended up being a chemical pregnancy. So it was just, you know, it was just like heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Um, like really, it's just so sad because you go through the whole process and it's, it's so much to go through. And then you're so excited because you get, the, you see that line, like for the first time ever, I had a positive pregnancy test and then it, it, it slowly fades. So at that point I kind of said like, all right, let's take a step back. Like, is there any other testing that can be done? Can we figure out what's going on? Like two chemicals in a row. My doctor was like, yeah, that's, that seems like kind of like something's going on. Right. So at that point in April of 2021, I went in for something called a sono histogram, <laughs> sono hysteriogram. I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, for short, they call it an SIS procedure, which is a similar um, procedure to the FHG. <laughs> HSG, there's all these acronyms, um, where they put saline through your, your tubes and your uterus to, to check everything. Um, they found a small polyp in, in the, my uterus. Um, they were like, it might be causing chemicals, but we don't really know. So it'd be worth just taking it out. Uh, so by May, I had that procedure to remove the polyp and then they actually do a DNC to clean everything out Oh wow! That's at the same time. So it really just like they scrape the lining, they do everything and, and, you know, get you ready for like the next cycle. So by June of 2021, we went in for our second frozen embryo transfer, but our third transfer total, um, which just ended up not sticking. And then, um, we were really, we were really just like bummed at that point. I mean, it had been a full year of like procedures yeah. and tests and all of this stuff. And it really started to get to us like mentally and emotionally. So we decided, you know what, let's just take a break. Um, my husband ended up having the varicocele surgery and that was July of 2021. So, you know, we figured this is a little bit of a break, but he can get this done. It'll give him time to like heal and everything. Um, so by just November of 2021, we decided to do our, another retrieval. This time we did it with the genetic testing. They call it PGT testing. We ended up with five embryos. Um, and then once they send them off, it takes a couple weeks to get the results back. So it's like more waiting. Oh You're like, gosh. Oh my gosh. When is this like going to stop? Oh. Um, so after we got the test back, we found out that all five, unfortunately, were genetically abnormal. Mm. So it really was just like a fully failed round. Yeah. You know, you're, you're just like, oh, wow. I can't believe that we ended right. up with nothing. So at that point, again, it's like, let's just take a step back. Let's take a break. Um, 
I think I booked us like a, a birthday trip for December for us to go to Punta Cana. <laughs> and I was whatever like, you got to do, whatever you got to do. Yeah. Just like, let's just get the hell out of here. Yeah. Um, so we went away. And then when we came back in January, um, I really started looking more into male factor of fertility. And I learned about DNA fragmentation, um, which is something that no one had ever talked to us about at the clinic and no one had ever mentioned like getting this test done. I had learned about it just through like forums and stuff. And at that point I, I had asked about it and they were like, you know, you can have it done, but we don't, you know, it's not really something we like push to do. And I ended up finding out that there was a third party company that offers it. You just have to get your doctor to sign off on it. So I was like, can we just do this? Like I'll pay out of pocket. I don't care. Um, so we ended up getting that done. They sent us like a huge, like cryo tank in the mail, which was crazy. And then my husband had to send his semen analysis sample in this cryo tank through the mail, which is just bizarre. Um, and then, so we got that test back and ended up finding out he had a 27% DNA fragmentation. Wow. So they consider 30 and under to be kind of like the benchmark for quote unquote normal. So anything above 30 is like really concerning. So he was under 30%. So they're like, you know, we're not like overly concerned again. But it's 27%, which is like. Yeah. It's still, there's still that. Yeah. That right. possibility it's there. Um, so. At that point, we're starting to just review all of our options. And I'm like, okay, well, what do we do with this information? So we met with our doctor, we met with the urologist, and they had recommended um, something called a TC procedure. So it's T-E-S-E. And basically what that means is um, they go in and they aspirate the sperm directly from the testicles and, and, and through surgery. And the thought process there is that they believe that the DNA fragmentation happens when it's in root. Okay. So between when the testicle, when it comes out, they believe that there's like an oxidation process that happens. So they're thinking by going to the source, it's, they haven't been damaged yet, essentially. Makes sense. Yeah. But it's pretty invasive. Like it's a pretty invasive. I I mean, yeah, like (laughs) I'll ask more about it a little bit later, but. I mean, just the thought of how, um, I mean, yeah, it's gotta be. Yeah. Yeah. So we, it it took a while to make that decision, but we ended up moving forward with our third retrieval in April of 2022. So this was last year. Um, and we did the TC procedure (laughs) Um, and I'm happy to like explain more about that later. Um, but with that one, it ended up being our worst round. Um, and again, there's like things we didn't realize going into it that I wish the doctors had explained to us. And one of them was um, that the sperm can be too immature okay. at that point because it has, it's not fully grown. So right. when they pulled the sample, they realized, you know, we don't really have a lot that is mature enough and like alive and twi- they need them to be kind of like at least twitching, if not swimming. Right. So, um, they, it took them a while to really like go through and sort it out and try to find sperm that like was good enough. Right. And at that point, I mean, I had 12 eggs, so, um, that was a really good round for me. And then you would think like, okay, 
they only need to find 12 sperm. But right. I mean, it, that's how my mind goes, but right. <laughs> but it was, it was hard apparently. Right. Um, and so with that one, we, they just stopped growing and we ended up with, with no embryos uh, for that one. Um, so that one was definitely very devastating. I mean, it was, it was like, I think it was the most, um, probably like emotionally, um, involved we were with this one right. because like he had to go through surgery and I had to go through, you know, so it was like, we and both had been through so much at that right. point. And at that point, I guess he had been through two surgeries. So right. for him, that was like even more devastating. Um, yeah. So at that point we were like, all right, <laughs> let's just like take another step back. Um, so we ended up taking a break from May, 2022 until March of, of this year. So it was almost a year, um, that we just needed that time off. Um, and then in 20 May of 2023, we did our fourth retrieval. Um, and this time we did it with something called the Zymot device, which again, I'm happy to explain more about this later, but, um, I had found out about it and it was something that I really pushed to get done because they use it a lot with DNA fragmentation. So, um, we ended up doing that retrieval with the Zymod and kind of a similar scenario. Like I had 12 eggs, four fertilized, but then none of them made it to embryo. Um, so yeah, so it was another failed round. Yeah, that was, um, you shared that whole procedure on, you know, your, um, I don't know if it was your Instagram, your new Instagram account, or you had the close friends. Um, yeah, I think it was on my close friends. Yeah. One. Which I mean, um, you know, not to kind of go on a tangent. I, I don't know if you did that for your mental health to do that story, but I just felt like that was such a great idea because I know you mentioned before, like, people would ask you a lot, like, how are you doing? What, and it's probably just exhausting answering the questions all the time. And when you feel comfortable going on, you just share a video and people can watch everything or people can watch nothing of it, but it gives yeah, everybody the answers that they, they're wanting to know because they care about you, but you don't have to go through. I mean, that was from my outside perspective of what it kind of, I felt like that was. Yeah. And I, I, I did that because I, I wanted to keep people informed and I wanted to share, but, um, sometimes like sharing in the moment, like texting people, you know, Oh, it didn't work. You start getting questions like, Oh, well, why didn't it work? Or did they say what went wrong? Or, you know, they start kind of asking you all these questions and you're like, I don't know the answers to any of this. I haven't even talked to my doctor yet. Like I literally just yeah. got the results. So, um, it was like, I wanted to share, but I also didn't really want to engage necessarily mm -hmm. like in that way. Um, and by putting it in my stories and saying like, Hey, here's what's going on. Here's the results. We don't know. We don't have the information yet. You know, I'll share when I can. I got, I just, and I liked the responses better because it was more like people were more in the moment with me versus like trying to help me come up with a solution yeah, or, or trying to help me solve a problem, which I think we all kind of do when, when our friends are like going through something or like, Oh, well, you know, whatever it may be. You're right. Like, what about this? Or did you try this? Or did you read about this? And it's just like what we do. Yeah, that, I mean, I did, I know I did that too. I was like, Oh, did you try a pomegranate juice? I was like, I, I oh, like yeah, but that was like much no. later. No, yeah, I, I know, that. but it is, no. it's just such a natural response to be like, 
I want to help you. And, um, yeah. And Which, for like, every- I will, I'm a huge advocate for like sharing this information yeah. and like sharing what you know and what you've learned because there's no way that like one person can research all of this. Right. Right. It's, it's really impossible. Yeah. So I have heard a lot of things from other people who said like, Oh, so-and-so tried this or so-and-so tried. And it's, it is great. Um, and, and you're sharing, you, you sharing it. It's on your own time, which is nice because it's not in, in the exact moment, but you know, you've given yourself a little bit of time to process. And then also you're not getting all these messages back right away, probably when you're <laughs> also feeling so, you know, in such a space. So I think that's a really good boundary to set up for yourself. I really found that like, it's really amazing that you thought to do that. Yeah. And I, I would recommend it for anyone who wants to like share parts of their life with their friends, but are just in a weird spot where they're like, you know, I'm not really looking for advice and I don't know how to say this like in person or through text. So yeah. Yeah. And it, they were great, you know, very informative and all of that. So I'm kind of going to go through like a few different segments of part of infertility, but I I wanted to talk to kind of start off with from the beginning, like finding out that you had to go through the treatments. A lot of times when individuals or couples receive the news of infertility, it brings about, like we were just saying, a range of emotions. And I was just going to see if you could shed some light on the typical emotional reaction that you may feel upon learning about it, not necessarily going through it, but that original we have to start going through this. What was your emotions that you kind of went through? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, and I don't, I don't know, you know, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I think a lot of times when you hear these things from the doctor, um, your first initial reaction is like almost denial. Right. (laughs) Like, is this really, is this really happening? Or like, did they miss something? Or, you know, you're kind of like, uh, do I really need IVF or do I really need treatments? And, um, for us, it was kind of like, it was definitely a shock, but we were, we were more just like, yeah, I guess we'll kind of see how this goes, but like, maybe we don't need it or maybe we won't need treatments. So, um, I feel like I definitely went into it very much like, oh, we're only going to need like one cycle. Like I'm not going to buy like all the the calendars and I'm not going to buy, you know, all these IVF things that everybody has like stickers and stuff. I was just like, I'm not in, in that mentality at yeah, all. It wasn't a part of who you were. It was just going to be like a small blip. And now it's like, yeah. Different. Um, yeah. I, like, I feel like for so many women, especially who go through infertility treatments, it's like <laughs> we spent our whole life trying not to get pregnant or like mm-hmm. you don't want to get, and then all of a sudden when you want to, you're like, what the heck everyone said that this was supposed to be easy and then this is the total opposite of that right right so communication it plays a crucial role in in any relationship but especially when faced with infertility how did you and Steve work through this about the process of understanding and um like accepting infertility I know you guys had to make a lot of decisions for both on both ends um, I'm sure that it wasn't easy to emotionally go through that. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think communication is, is huge because it's, it, it involves two people being very actively involved. It's not like one person can just like be the, 
you know, be the one going through everything and the other person is just like there. So, um, and even with like, cause a lot of the treatment stuff was obviously I was the one like physically going through it, but, um, I want I like, I needed to make sure that he was like on board for right. everything and, and there was going to be a willing participant. I didn't want to just like drag him along on this either. Right. So, um, yeah, no, we, we definitely had a lot of conversations about like, well, what do you think we should do? Or like, what is it? What do you think the next step should be? And, um, we were, we were following the doctor's advice pretty, um, strictly, I would say, like we were kind of saying, you know what, they're the experts, like we trust them. So if this is what they're saying, then like, this is what we should do. Right. We both felt that way. We both were like, all right, like, let's just, if that's what they're saying, our next step is like, that's, let's just do it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's the communication part is huge. Um, you have to be on the same page and you have to be kind of communicating what it is you want and then your feelings around everything as well. Um, and I'm an over communicator, <laughs> yeah. so I'm like constantly like communicating how I feel and like what I want to do. And so I feel like I, sometimes I'm like pulling it out of him a little bit more. Cause I'm like, I want to hear your opinion or I want right. to hear what you have to say. Like, I don't want to just be like making all the decisions. So yeah. So I, I'd say it's, it's huge. Yeah. Um, and then obviously society there, once you get married, the next question is when you're having kids, how do societal expectations or cultural norms influence your emotional like, conversations or just right in general conversations? Um, how does that, how did you, did you notice more of people were asking questions or people are just totally inappropriate? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, it is, there is this like cultural norm to like, as soon as you start dating someone, it's like, when are you getting engaged? And and then you get engaged and you're like, when are you getting married? And you get married and it's like, when are you having babies? And then you have a baby and it's like, when are you having your second one? Yeah. And I think part of this is, is people see it as just friendly conversation, right? And it's just kind of what we grew up hearing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, for years, people would say, or ask us, when are you having kids? Or they would say something and, and it didn't really bother me because I wasn't in that mindset. So I was kind of just like, when we're ready, like I'm focusing on my business, he's focusing on his career and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but then when you start actually going through it, it, it hits different. You know what I mean? It's like when those questions get asked, it's like, uh, how do I want to answer this? Depending on who it is and, mm -hmm. and how well you know them, right? Like, do I want to tell this person that we have been trying and we've been having trouble? Or um, it just, it depends. Um, right. and, and going through this, your emotions are so up and down that like even my response, my like immediate emotional response to it can be very different. So right. someone asking me on a good day, I'm just like, Oh, you know, we've tried and it hasn't happened yet. Blah, blah, blah. Um, or if it's like a really bad day and it's like, <sighs> I like can't even answer this question. Right. Like, you know, it just feels like really hard to answer. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting though, Steve gets asked that question more at his job. Um, he gets it almost every day. Whoa. Like, and I think it's because, so he's a nurse and I think, so he's dealing with strangers 
on a daily basis and seeing people like constantly. And I think just being in a setting of, you know, being in someone's room, a patient helping them. And you kind of like, you talk about your life. And so it's a little different. Cause I think like there's a little more of a, an intimate setting there. And, and so a lot of people will ask him like, Oh, do you have kids? And it's just kind of like, so I think unfortunately for him, he has to hear it a lot more. Um, and then of course, like all, all the, all of his coworkers are always asking and like new people at work are like, Oh, so do you have kids? And you know, he's gotten to the point where he's just like, no, I can't like, he's that's very like blunt, blunt. Yeah. And I feel like sometimes but... that's like, I, uh, one of, uh, my friends from down the shore, she would say when God gives me them, like when people would ask when God, mm-hmm. when God gives me them. And it's kind of mm-hmm. like, and like makes people feel a little uncomfortable. Cause you're like, is that good? Is that bad? Is that like, <laughs> yeah, I have kind of a crazy story. So we have like a cleaning crew that comes in once a month to clean our house. And, um, don't judge me people. <laughs> like, no judgment. I'm, I'm childless, but I'm, I'm cleaning crew. No, it's just, you have you dogs know, it's, with, you know, Oh my God, we have two golden retrievers yeah. and the hair is so bad in the yeah. dust and like I'm allergic to dust. So it's just, it's nice to have someone dust your house, honestly. Um, and there was this really nice older woman who worked with us and, and she was always so sweet. But one day she comes up to me and she's like, honey, when are you going to stop all this traveling around? Cause she saw all of our pictures traveling the world. She's like, when are you going to stop all this nonsense and this traveling around and settle down and have kids? And I just like looked at her and trying in the nicest Ugh. way possible. Cause she, she was, you know, she's an old lady. She meant well, I guess. And I was like, you know, we've been trying and we're going through fertility and, and the look on her face was just like, she could, she was like, uh, she didn't even know what to say. Now. <laughs> like, I'm hoping, hoping she won't say that to anyone else. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully she learned, which that actually was going to bring me to my next question. Like, how do you think that as a society, we can promote awareness and understanding to like foster a more supportive and empathetic environment for couples who are going through infertility like is there yeah i mean i think it's tough because um you don't necessarily know how how to like help people if you don't know what they're going through right and people aren't always going to be open about this so i think in terms of like raising awareness though um you know obviously doing stuff like this and then having like infertility awareness month is very helpful um but I think making it more um, normal to have conversations around it in like everyday life. So just catching up with friends or being in a group or at a barbecue or something. And and just when people are like, how's life going or how, how have things been? I find that when I say to people, like even people I'm not really, I don't know that well. I'm like, yeah, you know, it's been been tough. We've been going through IVF and, you know, it's been really stressful. And I've had people like open up and be like, oh my gosh, like I had a miscarriage a couple years ago and, you know, I didn't, we didn't tell anybody, nobody knew. And, um, so I think just like making it a more regular part of, of conversations and like letting people know that it's okay to talk about that stuff, honestly, Yeah, I just saw a headline for, and I have no idea who the celebrity was, but she said like, stop saying women are so brave for sharing. They had a miscarriage. And I was like, what, what the heck? And I like read the article. I'm like, 
Yeah, because it gives like we shouldn't have to be brave. You should be able to just say it. Like it should be just like I went to the grocery store. You know, you should feel. I mean, obviously, it's not the same thing, but it should be able to be brought up so organically in conversation because mm-hmm. it's something that's a huge part of your life. Like if yeah. you know you're going through a tough time, but like why is that cut off? from anyone else talking about, you know, that specifically. Yeah, definitely. Um, so let's get into the IVF. Um, what is the procedure specifically with IVF? Like how, how do you pick the eggs or the sperm? Or- right, right. So, um, it's actually pretty wild. Like the science of it is so amazing. And, you know, I think we're coming up on like 40 years and we just surpassed 40 years of IVF. Um, so it's pretty amazing that it's been around as long as it has, but, um, essentially the process is that, um, you start your cycle day one, you call the office and they get you in for an appointment to get, um, everything checked, you get blood work, all that, make sure everything is leveled out. <laughs> and then, you get on birth control for like a couple weeks because again they want to really monitor your cycle and make sure that they have the most control possible um and then after a couple weeks they come off of it you come off of it and then of course you get a second period within like a two-week period Mm -hmm. which is wonderful um and then they basically start the process of giving you meds to grow your follicles that are eventually going to um house the eggs. So typically a woman will ovulate one egg a month, um, typically. And so one egg comes from one follicle. So basically they give you these meds and injections, um, hormones to help, help you grow as many follicles as possible. So it's, it's a very unnatural process, obviously that your body's Mm -hmm. going through. Your body is not used to having this many hormones and, and, going through your body at, at one time. Right. Um, so the, the actual retrieval process from start to finish, when you start the injections until the retrieval day, it's only two weeks, um, which can feel a lot longer when you're going through it, honestly, because it's just like, at one point you're giving like three injections a day. Um, you usually start with like two and then you do them in the morning or I'm sorry, you do them in the evening and then they add another one kind of halfway through that you do in the morning. So the, the meds that I was on, um, are pretty standard. It's called Gonal F, um, is one of them. Um, Ganorelix is the other one. And then, um, gosh, I'm actually blanking on the other one, the last one, but it, it basically is, um, the follicle stimulating hormone. Actually, that one could be gone off. I'm forgetting already. And I literally just went through this like two months ago. Sorry, <laughs> um, it's a lot. Yeah, 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 it's a lot. Um, so yeah, so that two week period, you're taking meds and hormones to try and grow as many follicles as possible. So um, you're going in for a lot of monitoring appointments during that time. So you start off with just like blood work every few days. And then pretty much like the last seven days or so, um, at least for me, I was going in, I was getting a vaginal ultrasound and blood work every other day. And then the last few days leading up to it, I went in every day. So you go in, they do a vaginal ultrasound. They're basically um, looking to see how many follicles they are. And then they're measuring them 
each step of the way because they want them to be a certain size so that they know that they'll be mature enough. So um, that's like why you have to go in for monitoring, monitoring so often. So like, I mean, your, um, your business, you're able to be a little bit more flexible. How do people who don't have that flexible schedule, like what? Yeah, honestly, I really don't know. Yeah, I work from home, I own my own business, so I can really, I can work around my own schedule, but I can't imagine for people who work very strict schedules. So Steve, I mean, he, with his job, he can't just like leave and go to a quick appointment during his 12 hour shift. I mean, you have to like schedule your days around your appointments. You know what I mean? So I'm really not sure how people do it. I, I know that a lot of people bend over backwards to try and make it work. They make up hours, they work night, whatever it is, but it is a lot. It's a lot. Okay, so now once you've gone through the um, lead up, can you explain what the actual um, procedure is, like the retrieval procedure? Yeah. So um, I remember going into my first retrieval, I was very nervous. Um, But I can honestly say, as much as it feels like a big deal because you are being put to sleep, but it is local anesthesia. So it's really only, you're only out for like 30 minutes. Um, it's really not terrible, um, for anyone who has to go through it or is maybe facing it. Um, it, it seems like a lot, it's very overwhelming at first, but once you get through it, it, it's like, wow, okay, that's done. (laughs) So you go in the day of, um, they tell you not to eat or eat or drink anything after midnight. You go in super early. I think we got there at like six and then my, my uh, procedure was scheduled for eight. So you go in, you sign a bunch of paperwork. Um, leading up to this, you have to sign a lot of waivers in terms of um, what happens to the embryos. If something happens to you or your husband or both of you, who do they go to? And you know, these like all these consent forms of what happens if you get divorced? Like who gets the embryos? Like it's crazy. I was just having this conversation because, well, my cousin and one of my girlfriends both have embryos. And like my cousin was saying, like every year they just, you know, they pay to keep them there. And and that's the same thing with what my friend was saying. They weren't sure what to do with them. And they're like, it's such this emotional, like, what do we do with them? Yeah. Like, yeah. Hey, you get attached. I mean, I'm sure, especially if they have kids, from previous cycles, like, you know, that those embryos turn into babies. Right. So (laughs) like, how, how can you, yeah. What do you do with them? Yeah. So so you you have to really think about all that and sign these consent forms ahead of time. Um, so you go in, you sign the consent forms and then, um, so wait, if you and Steve get divorced, who gets the embryos? I'm just kidding. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny because, um, when we were like, Cause you have to see you have to sign them like in front of somebody like, yeah. so yeah, it's kind of funny. You have to sign them in front of somebody. And so, um, Steve was like, you're the one like going through all of this, and, like having these eggs taken out of you. And like, that's, that's crazy. Like they're yours. <laughs> I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> then they're mine. Um, but yeah, so So you do all that. He has to go back and do a semen analysis, like fresh sample. And then I go um, into the room. I get my IV put in. You sit there for like a little bit. I mean, our clinic was great about like, they get you in, you're not sitting around. 
you're you're the only person there that they're dealing with before the next person comes in. So it's like very, very focused on like you. Um, and they're great. They like, put, you know, put like warm blankets on you. They make sure you feel great and like, you know, ask you how you're feeling. And it's, it, they're just wonderful. Um, so once all that happens, then you go into the room and you get on the table and they basically set you up for like, it's like, you know, when you're at the gynecologist and you have the, like the stirrups, yeah. but like times a hundred because oh, like they have these like leg things that your legs go in that like your whole leg has to go in and to like be stabilized. Um, and then once they get you all set up, they come in, they explain what they're doing again. They get a verbal consent. Like, this is what we're doing. You understand what's going on, blah, blah, blah. And then they put you to sleep. The best 30 minutes of sleep you've ever gotten. <laughs> nice and then you wake up all like groggy and they put you in a little room. And um, at that point, they tell you how many eggs they've retrieved. So essentially they go in with a really long needle. They um, they actually puncture through the side um, of your uterus, I think. And they go into your ovary directly. Okay. And then they, they aspirate each egg individually. So it's a very like precise wow. um, procedure that's done. Um, and then afterwards they tell you how many <laughs> eggs they retrieved. Okay. Um, and then at that point they have to inseminate them with the sperm and then they'll tell you the next day how many actually fertilized. Okay. And then, so I, so once they are fertilized, then you have to wait a certain number of days to see if they grow. Right. Yeah. So usually a lot of, um, clinics will let them grow up to day six, ours okay. did till day seven, a day five blastocyst day three, day five is kind of like ideal. Um, most clinics want them to get to day five. Um, and basically what that means is they're trying to get the cells to keep dividing and growing. So it turns right. into one little cell, one little egg, and then the cells just keep dividing. So they want them to grow really big. And then um, at some point they want to see a little bit of hatching that's like already happened. So once they look good, then they'll either freeze them or do a transfer. Okay. I know that IVF obviously could be expensive or you can have it covered under your insurance for some plans. Do you know of any resources for people who it's not covered under their plans? To get yeah. So it, it, unfortunately, this is like the most unfair part of, yeah. of IVF and fertility treatments because one person might have insurance coverage and then the next person doesn't. And it's all the same mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of grant opportunities out there. Um, I did apply for some, but some of them are rolling grants where you have to apply every month and they might be $5,000, $10,000. Um, a lot of times they're funded to a certain amount and then they kind of split them up between people throughout the year. Right. Yeah, I did apply for some, but didn't we didn't get anything. I think a lot of times they're more like lottery based. Right. But they just kind of pick people on a lottery basis each month. I don't think it's based on any yeah. criteria because, like, really, how do you like? Yeah, pick that sort out like who better, has yeah. a worse story. You know what I mean? Right. Like, it's just like everybody needs it. Yeah, yeah. So there's definitely some grant options. Honestly, if you just like Google IVF grants, like a bunch come up. Um, okay. It does take some research and 
time just to like apply for them and, you know, follow up and things like that. Um, but yeah, so there's that. And then some clinics will also offer payment plans. Um, so on our last round, we ended up, um, we were very lucky to have some insurance coverage and it covered the first three rounds, which was crazy. I honestly wasn't expecting it because it was a set amount that they gave us. And they're like, here's your lifetime max once you hit that. But one thing I found out while researching was they charge the insurance companies much less than they charge people paying out of pocket. So through insurance, we got more rounds than I was expecting, honestly, which was wonderful. I mean, I really... I'm so thankful that we had anything at all because some people don't have anything. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're very fortunate there. And so with this last round, we ended up going through a third party, um, company called arc. And the reason we went through them was, um, they offered the payment plans, but also they gave, there was a little more of a discounted package through them. where you got a little bit more than just going straight through the fertility clinic. So they do only work with specific clinic clinics. You do have to check with them, but, um, we were able to get like kind of a bundled deal where it was like, you get the retrieval, but then you also get a transfer with it. So like two for one, right? No, yeah. But yeah, so I would look into that. Um, and see if your clinic offers anything. Oh, and the other big one that I will say that I did not know about when we first started was something called um, the rebate program. Okay. So some clinics offer a rebate where I think it's like you pay for three cycles up front, but then if you have a successful pregnancy and birth, you get half of it refunded. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously if, if all three fail, you don't right. get a refund, which almost seems like it should be that way because yeah, you it's should worse. It if it's- um, uh, so yeah, so that I w- is something I, w- I would have people look into before starting. Um, by the time I found out about it, unfortunately, we were not eligible because we had already had so many failed rounds. Okay. That's, that's tough. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about the male factor infertility. Um, that is something that a lot of people do not talk about. Um, you know, I feel as though obviously women are more natural to just converse about it, but, um, you know, men, there's not really a lot of information out there. Um, and I think it's so great that you're sharing about it. So I know you talked about is it the TC procedure that he, that he went through. Can you tell like a little bit more in depth about that? What is the main idea around to get once you get to that point, I guess you did talk a lot about it earlier. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the idea behind it is that there's two different ways they go about doing that surgery. So they either go in and aspirate the sperm by like just putting a needle in there and trying to suck out. Okay. But then there's also another method of going in and grabbing a bunch of tissue that has sperm in it. And the idea behind that is they hopefully get more sperm pulled okay. and then you'd maybe have some leftover. Right. Um, but it's, it is more invasive because they're like taking tissue versus just like sucking it out. So, yeah. Um, how, yeah. How was like the recovery for that? Was that, um, it was, I think it was honestly harder than 
we expected like yeah. expected um it's definitely in a lot of pain after um and and i don't i don't want to like scare people off from like doing this because i do think it is worth exploring if if you're at that point yeah um but i think it's it's good to be realistic about like the healing time it takes so i know he was definitely like very sore for like a couple weeks and then it still kind of took a couple months maybe a few months for him to feel normal yeah um because they essentially like for the varicocele surgery they did an incision more in his groin area okay. up, up higher but for this they it, the incision is actually on the testicle okay oh, God. so <laughs> yeah uh it's no fun for them yeah um yeah so a lot of ice packs a lot of trying to take it easy yeah. um but i do think that the actual procedure itself didn't take very long so healing was the yeah yeah so that part wasn't too bad and then he also used the is it zymot is that zymot device what is mm -hmm. that um what is that um... yeah so the zymot which is spelled z y m o t okay um it was invented by a urologist and essentially what it is, it's, it's actually pretty simple in, in how it works. Um, it's, it's kind of cool. If you Google, like they have like an illustration of, of how it works. It's kind of cool to watch. Um, essentially they take the sperm and they put it through this device and then the device is almost like, think of it like an obstacle course for okay. the sperm. <laughs> so it has to get through the holes to oh. come out on the other side okay so essentially the idea behind it is it helps separate out the dna fragmentated oh, sperm because okay. the dna fragmentated ones don't really swim properly okay and so it's like they can't really get through so it's kind it's almost like a self-separating self-selector right. device so when i had heard about it i was like hmm this yeah. is very interesting and it's it's extremely low cost. Um, okay. I think the company itself sells them in packet packs yeah. for like six, six of them for like 1500 bucks or something. Okay. I don't know, but the clinics always, you know, they sell them, whatever they like upsell them. So yeah. I think we paid like 500 to use it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a very simple way of doing IVF. If you, don't want to do the TC procedure and the DNA fragmentation is an issue. As far as I know, I, I don't know if they do it with IUI. I feel like I remember reading about it, but I can't remember. Um, I know that there's a minimum number of sperm that they need though, okay. in order to use the device. So now from your just personal experience, would you recommend trying that first before? Cause you did that second, right? Or right. Um, oh. I, I would, I mean, yeah. it's like, it's low cost, it's low risk there, right. you know, you're not having surgery. Yeah. So I would a hundred percent do that first. Um, and I've heard a lot of people have successful success with it. So just because we didn't yeah. doesn't really mean that I wouldn't do it again. You know what I mean? Right. And so his main male, um, infertility issue is the DNA fragmentation. So is there like a specific cause behind that or is there it's just his DNA. So, yeah, I mean, part of it is um, the varicocele could yeah. could ha play a part in it for sure. Yeah, I mean, there's been some controversy around whether or not 
um, environmental factors can affect it and, and make it worse or make it better. Um, we have not done another DNA fragmentation test to see if any, like the supplements have helped or anything like that. But um, I think those studies are still very new. Um, so I'm hoping that we'll find out more information in the future because I think DNA fragmentation was only just discovered in like the 2010s. Oh, wow. Oh so God. they're just starting to learn about yeah. it and, and find out more information. Um, I think, unfortunately, the research and data around male factor infertility is is much slower. I mean, if you think about it, like most guys are a lot less willing to perhaps like go through trials for like these medical um, trials when it comes to infertility and things like that. And they're maybe also not as vocal about some of the issues they're having. Whereas women, we talk about everything and anything and we're willing to kind of like go through the ringer and do what needs to be done. If they're like, Oh, do you mind being a part of this like medical study? It's like, sure. Okay. But if they don't know that men are having these issues, then it's harder to even get people to be a part of these studies. Such a good point. Such a good point. Yeah. All right. So you've answered so many of my questions and um, shared so much of your journey, which is, I mean, just so interesting. All of the different parts of it Um, have a couple wrap up questions, Um, but the first would be reflecting on your personal journey and the insights you've shared. What advice or words of encouragement would you offer to others who may be facing similar challenges on their path to parenthood? Yeah. So I think the biggest one is um, trying to find your support systems and whether that is people in your relationship in your circle that you have relationships with or reaching out to strangers on the internet (laughs) through forums. I mean, I joined a lot of Facebook groups, one of them specifically for male factor infertility. Um, I was able to get like a lot of questions answered on there and you get a lot of support there too, because people know like exactly what you're going through. Mm -hmm. Um, And even just some like, you know, a lot of it's women on there. There are some guys on there though. So that's nice to like get their perspective. And I've, I've like read through a lot of guys responses and I'm like, Oh, okay. Hmm. That's like good to okay, think about it from that. Point right. Of view. Um, so yeah, so I think finding your support system and, and if, if your support system is not necessarily your immediate circle, um, you know, I wouldn't be discouraged. Like I know it's hard to talk to people who aren't you know, you're not comfortable with who aren't friends and family, but honestly, I have met some amazing people through Instagram. I follow so many accounts on Instagram that I've just started messaging people and they would message me back. And it's like, wow, okay. You're going through something very similar and they can really empathize with you and, and they really are rooting for your wins. And then they're commiserating with you on your losses. So it's, it's nice to have that. Um, and I started an Instagram specifically for IVF because I found that, um, I don't know, like I was reaching out to people on there, but I also realized like, I can be someone that people reach out to. Why don't I start my own? And then 
people can come to me and ask me questions because, you know, at this point, um, <laughs> we've been through so much. I feel like a little bit of an expert, right. <laughs> you know, at this stage. So I'm like, why not? Um, so yeah, so I would say find your support system any way that you can. That's so important. Yes. And your Instagram, um, is going to just like help so many people. It's so informative. And I've, I don't, I, I don't know if the right word is like, I've loved following it. Cause it's like off of your troubles, <laughs> right? but right. it's really, um, so you do such a good job with it of just explaining everything and, um, educating people. And it's definitely, um, going to be so helpful for other people too. Yeah. And I think the other thing is too, I've finally gotten to the point in this kind of journey where, um, seeing other people's journeys and successes isn't as hard for me. Right. So like it is harder if, if you're going through it and you're following all these accounts and then you're constantly seeing people like have success or cause you, you're rooting for them at the same time, but then it is hard. So, right. I think at this stage, it was just a good time for me to start this because I'm not as like triggered by things, I guess right. you could say. So, and that's the other thing. The other reason why I wanted to start it was because I really wanted to show people that as hard as this is, you can still try to find, you know, those moments of joy and happiness throughout the process and like, you know, find ways to enjoy life and still like try to come back to being yourself and not yeah. just let this completely take over your life because it will a hundred, like you, you jump in with two feet and then before you know it, you're literally drowning and you're like, I, I don't know how I got here. <laughs> yeah. You just, I think um, you just posted about when you went to Disney with your niece about how important that was for you to do, which I thought was. Yeah. Great. It just, I just like realized kind of in the moment, it was like right after our third retrieval had failed. Um, and I, you know, it was planning to take her to Disney for her graduation and I was there and I was realizing, you know, and it, it was, it was hard in a way I wasn't expecting because I was seeing all these people with yeah. kids and families and it wasn't something I had thought about before right. booking it. And it was yeah. kind of just somewhere she wanted to go. And I was like, Oh, great. This yeah. fun. And I found myself being like very triggered by like seeing if even, and as crazy as it sounds, even the families that looked miserable, even the kids that were like screaming and like having a, like still, like, I was like, wow, I, this is, you know, it was kind of making me sad. And then I had to stop myself and be like, you know what? That's, that's not, life is not this. It's not right. like living in this constant state of like sadness or being triggered or, and I, I definitely just kind of let go emotionally a little bit and said, you know what? I just want to like enjoy this time with her. Yeah. Have fun. Um, and that, that really made me realize like you can't let this, in, this become your identity. Like it can't right. be who you are. Like it's just a part of something that you're going through, but it's right. not going to be your identity forever. And I'm sure it's really hard to not make it be about that in the moment, especially like, Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. It's you get so engulfed in it and it's like all consuming. Um, so it's, it's very easy to kind of slip into that. Yeah. Almost like a victimhood, you know what right. I mean? Um, and I hate to say that cause I don't mean to sound mean, but like I felt myself becoming that. It's just, it's your perspective of how you want to 
look at it, I guess. Yeah. With everything in life. Yeah. Um, so do you have specific resources, organizations or communities that outside of Facebook that have been, you know, particularly helpful for you during it? Um, not specifically. Um, I have started following some doctors on like, in listening to their podcast. Um, so I'm sure if you're involved in IVF in any sort of way, you've heard of the egg whisperer. Um, I forget her actual name. I have to look it up. Um, she has a book called it starts with the egg. Okay. Um, and it's very popular. It's also a little controversial because okay. she's essentially claiming that, you know, you can improve egg quality, um, through diet and, and lifestyle. And so I think like I take some of that with a grain of salt because again, it can become obsessive mm-hmm. and all consuming. Um, but I, I started following her podcast, which um, has been very informative. There's another one. I'm forgetting her name right now, but Natalie, oh, Natalie Crawford. She's wonderful. She's a, um, a uh, fertility doctor. Okay. Um, I think she, I don't know if she's based in California, but I started listening to her podcast and I just love, love how real and honest she is. She's very genuine. She went through IVF herself. So she has a different perspective and she interviews all different types of people in the IVF world. And she will talk about male factor and PCOS, like anything. Even during COVID, she was kind of answering questions about um, people who were worried about getting like the COVID vaccine and things like that. Like, should you or shouldn't you? And she like is good about trying to be informative without actually like pushing an agenda necessarily. Um, so I would, I would recommend her as well. Yeah. I'll link them both in the, um, notes. Yeah. Um, so last question looking ahead, like what, um, are your hopes for the future? Um, but also like what's your next step for the future in regards to your infertility journey? So our next steps, um, honestly are very up in the air. We don't really know. Um, you know, we've we've been presented with some options of like using donor, whether it's donor sperm, donor egg. I mean, my eggs up until this point they haven't really had an issue with, but they said like perhaps at this point I'm I'm 37, I'll be turning 38 this year. They said could be something you want to consider or even donor embryo. So that's um, couples who have extra embryos and they need to get rid of them. They will donate them oh, to couples. Wow, okay. Yeah. So like you were saying, your friends. Yeah have extra embryos, um, which I know is such an emotional thing. And I really give people credit who who donate them because, um, I know it's gotta be a huge, huge decision, but I also understand that not everybody wants 10 kids and if you have seven (laughs) embryos in storage, like you don't want to throw them away, but you don't, you don't want more kids. Like I, I get it. So, um, but we're just not really, ready for any of that yet we've had discussions around it but like neither of us really feel like it's that right right now um and it's just a really hard thing to wrap your yeah you know what I mean and especially I'm if I'm still producing eggs and still getting some sort of result it's hard to say like okay let's just give up and go to the next step you know right it's a matter of when do you tap out financially, emotionally, mentally, physically, that's, those are hard, hard decisions. So at this point, um, 
I'm just trying to focus on, you know, I've, I've been going to therapy and one of the things that I have been trying to work on is I want to figure out a way to just live a fulfilled life regardless. So I want to be prepared if if this doesn't work, if we don't move on to the donor, whatever, and we just decide, you know what, we're going to live as like a childless couple. What does that actually look like? And can I be happy and fulfilled in a way that is going to not have a negative impact on our future? Right. Um, So I'm trying to be realistic and, and figure out if that's something that I need to kind of eventually come to terms with. Um, but I'm not giving up hope. Yeah. Oh so my gosh. Oh, that's such a tough decision. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. So we'll see. Um, all right. Well, I mean, I think that's the way to end it. You know, I, um, you know, I don't, you did such a great job with like expressing everything and explaining everything. And it was just such a great, um, learning experience for myself and for everyone learning or everyone listening. Um, but I want to express my gratitude to you for sharing your powerful and inspiring journey through male infertility, um, IUIs, and obviously your unwavering determination to overcome all of these. Um, Noelle's story reminds us of the strength and resilience that can be found within us when faced with adversity, her openness and vulnerability throughout this episode has touched all of our hearts and shed light of the emotional, physical, and financial aspects of infertility treatments. I would also like to take a moment to mention, as we talked about Noelle's new social media account, it's at millennial.ivf.warrior, and I will link that obviously in the show notes as well. Through this platform, she's created a space to share her infertility journey, provide support, encouragement, and fosters a sense of community for others going through similar experiences. I really encourage you to give her a follow and join in her conversation and just to end it, you know, your determination, advocacy, and willingness to share your story will undoubtedly inspire others who are on their own paths to parenthood. Your courage is a testament to the resilience of the human spirit. So thank you for joining us on this insightful episode. Remember you're not alone in your journey and there are support networks and resources available to you. Thanks Noelle for coming on. This was great. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. I'm really glad we were able to do this. And truly, like, I really just hope it helps somebody, you know, it's like, it will. if if anything, you know, going through all of this more than anything, I just want to, to kind of just be an advocate for other people. So, um, I really appreciate like doing something like this and just getting like the word out. So, so yeah, yeah. Thank you. I'm so happy. I know. And we have to get together soon. It's been way too long. (laughs) No, I know. I was, literally just saying this the other day i'm like i can't believe we haven't met their kids oh my gosh yeah it's been it's just like i you know obviously i feel like i've like followed them from birth (laughs) on instagram which is like so weird to say but like i I feel like i like know their personalities and everything and like i love following all the you know the stories and stuff but i do i really do want to see you guys and just get to meet them now that it's a little calmer, we'll definitely this summer have to uh, get together. So, yeah, we're you know obviously we're always up that way. Yeah. So, oh yeah, yeah. When you guys are up, like, yeah, we'd be happy to like come by and just hang out. I yeah. mean, at this point, like you know, with all of our friends having kids, I'm like, we'll just come to your house and like <laughs> yeah. hang out and drink. Like we don't, we don't that have way. to like 
yeah, we don't have to like go anywhere or do anything crazy. Like, let's just like it's hang out wild. You can have drinks and a cheese board. And exactly. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So whenever you guys want, we're down. Awesome. Um, all right. Well, as always, if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to the Running Wine Mom podcast and leave a review. You can always follow me on Instagram at the Running Wine Mom underscore. I love hearing from you and it helps me bring more inspiring content to you. So again, thank you for joining today. Remember you are strong, you're capable, and you are all amazing. Until next time, keep running, keep sipping, and keep embracing the joy of motherhood. Cheers. And I will be back next Tuesday.